Okay, good morning. Let me just check this. Oh, good morning, Reach Montreal. Welcome uh, again to our gathering today. Um, my name is Jeff, as uh, Stephen mentioned uh, this morning. Always a pleasure to be with you. So we're continuing through this series in the book of Mark. And I just love how Steve opened up with Psalm 118. And just reading these verses to us saying that, what does he say? This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We get to declare that and live in that truth because of who Jesus is and the way that he provided for us. So the title of this sermon series called The Way shows us everything about the way Jesus opened the gates of salvation that we read about in Psalm 118. Um, and, and it even involved him being rejected, as it says here too in the same psalm, that this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So I just love that we opened up with that today. We didn't plan that, but it has everything to do with what I'm going to speak on today from Mark chapter 8. So yeah, we're in Mark chapter 8. We're looking, uh, starting with verse 27, if you want to turn in your Bibles to that. But within this whole uh, passage, one thing that stands out to me that I really want to get behind with us today is these words that Jesus says to Peter when he says, get behind me, Satan. These words stand out off of these pages so blatantly, almost so offensively, that Jesus would look at his friend, his disciple Peter, and say, get behind me, Satan. This is where I want to draw our attention to today as we go through this book, because remember, it was Peter who recounted this gospel that John Mark recorded as a scribe in the gospel of Mark. And so here we have Peter at the crux of his gospel account. Um, in, in one moment, he's proclaiming Jesus as the Christ, which is a stunning divine revelation. And then in the direct moments following, we see Jesus saying, get behind me, Satan. It would, a stunning divine rebuke. So we have to ask, what is Peter showing us by recounting possibly his best and yet subsequently one of his lowest moments with Jesus? So this is a little bit uh, what we're going to look at today in this passage. So we'll get to the root of this, but the heart of the passage has everything to do with Christ. It's not centered on Satan, get behind me, Satan. It's not centered on Peter, who he was and what he did, but it's centered on Christ. And uh, not just Jesus, but Jesus as the Christ and his role of Christ, the Messiah. And that's where the dialogue in this whole scene erupts from a conversation about the identity and the mission and the call of the Christ. And this has huge implications on our life today, this week, and actually for our eternal life. Get behind me, Satan shows us that there are really two worlds in competition with each other. One of God and one of Satan. So how did Peter seemingly go from one right to the other so quickly? Was this just an isolated incident for Peter? Or are we susceptible to the same dilemma today? If Jesus were here today, would we hear his praise for you and I saying, blessed are you, Peter, uh, good job, or get behind me, Peter, kind of statement. 
So here's where we've come from, where we're going as we get into this passage. Um, and then I'm going to read through it too, uh, just to keep us up uh, to pace. So up until now, Jesus, as we've been going through the book of Mark, he has spent his earthly ministry teaching and healing to declare the salvation for sinners through, through God's grace and demonstrating the kingdom of God that is at hand in him. So he declared and he demonstrated these things. And now we come to this pivotal moment. How is the kingdom of God real for humans like us? How can humans like us enter the kingdom of God? Um, how is salvation accomplished for sinners like us? How can a sinner like you and I enter the kingdom of God? We find that there is no gospel without Christ, the person of Christ, the mission of Christ, the call of Christ. There's no salvation for you and I. There's no kingdom of God for you and I without this very important point in scripture and this theme in scripture. But despite the truth and the beauty of the gospel, which is all centered on Christ, there is still a seductive lie at work in our hearts, which tempts us to doubt God's place, God's plan in place of our own. So you and I, like Peter, we far too often come under this divine rebuke when, when we profess Christ with our mouths in one moment and then in the subsequent moments we end up denying the very essence of the gospel just in our, our practical way of life. It's so convenient because of the seductive lies of Satan to substitute a more appealing version of the gospel, a certain good news in place of the true good news, which like we read about um, already is going to entail the work of denying oneself, carrying our cross and following Jesus. So Satan's lie has prospered all the way from Adam to Peter to my two-year-old uh, and myself, you and I and the neighbors we cross paths with every day. It's something in all of our hearts that is at work. What is the antidote to this poison? That's what we will look at today as Jesus unpacks what he meant by get behind me, Satan, in light of the identity and the mission and the call of Christ. So let me pray for us as we, now we're gonna read the scripture and get into that. Jesus, thank you for your grace for us today, that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you've created. We can rejoice in you and you have opened the gates of salvation. We are here to worship you. So I pray that you'd bless really the words of my mouth, the uh, intentions of my heart, Lord, the meditations of my heart, that your word would speak, the Holy Spirit, that you would speak even as you already are through your word. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Let me just cue up a couple things here. All right. So let's take a look at Mark chapter 8. It says that Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So he's, he's walking with his disciples, and we see him asking, who do people say that I am? I picture it like this. He's trying to get a feel for what does the general population 
assume or conclude about who I am. It would be like a, a general survey of the popular opinion. It'd be like, I picture Steve Harvey on Family Feud asking the disciples, who do people say that I am? Well, John the Baptist. Okay, survey says, John the Baptist. Popular opinion, yes, John the Baptist. Who do people say that I am? Elijah. Okay, survey says, Elijah. Who do people say that I am? Who do people say that Jesus is? Well, he's a prophet. Survey says, yes, people think Jesus is a prophet. This is the popular opinion. But then he goes to Peter, or he, he asks them, really, who do you say that I am? And that's where Peter says, you are the Christ. That's the correct answer. Everyone else, popular opinion, yes, these are the assumptions and conclusions that people drew, but they have it wrong um, on the identity of Jesus. Um, they miss his true divine identity that Peter correctly says, you are the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Notice though, that when he asks, who do people say that I am? Do we hear uh, a rabbi or teacher? Eh. Survey says, no, not a rabbi or teacher. Do, what do people say that I am, a deceiver or a false prophet? No, that's not one of the common assumptions. People at least attribute supernatural work and, and words to Jesus, but this is an important point when we're talking about the Christ. Nobody believes that he is a deceiver or a false prophet. So Peter says, you are the Christ. Uh, God reveals who he is to Peter. Christ was not Jesus' last name. It was his divine identity as the Son of God. And this is huge news. This is a stunning revelation. And in Matthew's account of the gospel, we see the same scene. And uh, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, that is Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So, Peter has this divine revelation from God that Jesus is the Christ. This is amazing because other people had in fact claimed to be Christ. Other people at that time had risen up in political movements because they assumed that the prophetic um, anticipation of the Christ would be accomplished politically here and now bringing freedom and restoration for God's people. That's what their heart and their mind was set on. And so when political opposition would rise up against the Romans, some people would identify themselves as the Christ. They were all proven wrong. They were not the Christ. People don't draw that assumption about this Jesus of Nazareth. So this actually means that this is not just one of the other people who claim to be Christ. God has revealed to you, Peter, that this is the Christ that has been anticipated for from the beginning, one who will bring freedom and restoration to God's people. This is amazing. Jesus is here. He is the Christ. The day of salvation has dawned. The gates have opened up now that the actual Christ is here. It's important for us to understand the Christ. That, that Christ is not just Jesus' last name. That it was a role in a divine identity. And that it is of Jesus forever for our eternal salvation. Other people have strayed from this position. Check this out. Um, even in our time, uh, 
recently, a former influential Christian and worship artist, Michael Gungor, he wrote on Twitter just three or four weeks ago saying this, Jesus was Christ, Buddha was Christ, Muhammad was Christ. He said, Christ is a word for the universe seeing itself. You are Christ. We are the body of Christ. What's sad is that these weren't just some random shower thoughts that he put out on Twitter. This comes from a teaching from a book that actually holds the number three spot on Amazon in the category of Christology today, which held the number one spot for a long time, universal Christ. This isn't just some random thing. People are trying to separate the work of Christ from the work of Jesus and the role of Christ for our salvation from Jesus. But that's not what we see in scripture in this passage. Jesus is the Christ, not just a Christ of many. He is the Christ. He's not just the Christ for his time. He is the Christ for all of us in every generation and every nation. So we have to point that out, lest we are tossed to and fro by crafty and deceitful schemes, as it says, as Paul warns us in Ephesians. But he says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So Jesus actually avoids misconceptions on who he is by teaching his disciples. He's telling them who he is. And get this, at the end of that passage, we see that he says, don't, don't tell anyone about me. Jesus is actually helping his disciples. Why would he say, don't tell anyone about me? Now that you have the correct answer, don't tell anyone about me. He is protecting against misconceptions because he will teach them true Christology. He will tell them who he is because there are misconceptions about these other false Christs who have risen up. Wouldn't we want to go back to that crowd and say, it's not, he's not John the Baptist, he's the Christ. You thought he was Elijah, he's not Elijah, he's the Christ. Wouldn't you want to correct him? He's not just a prophet, he's the Christ. Yes, we do, but not yet. There's some key elements that are needed. Yes, Jesus is the Christ, but their answer is correct, but incomplete. And so Jesus is going to work to give them a complete answer on who the Christ is. Um, either because some things need to happen first, okay, Jesus' death and resurrection, and then people will know I'm the Christ. Or it seems like with his group of disciples, as he begins to teach them, he's saying, I will give you the information ahead of time. I will give you the full picture on who the Christ really is, the Son of Man, in the suffering and rejection and death and resurrection of the Son of Man. So now he unpacks what is the mission of Christ. Pick up with me again here in Mark chapter 8. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
this is where we come to this point in time. In the span of several moments, Peter goes from divine revelation to divine rebuke. How does this take place? What is behind this iconic, momentous statement, get behind me, Satan? This is where Jesus teaches Christology 101. It says he began to teach them about the Son of Man. That the Son of Man must suffer many things. The Son of Man must be rejected by the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. That the Son of Man must be killed. And that the Son of Man, after three days, must rise again. And when he says Son of Man, this is the Christ. This is the Redeemer who will bring freedom for God's people. This is the Son of God. And uh, the prophet Daniel refers to the Son of God as the Son of Man, who will bring restoration and also judgment. So anyway, he's giving them a complete gospel. He's giving them the, the full picture. Peter had the correct title, but he had an incomplete picture. Now he has the complete gospel on the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He's... Uh, giving them the full picture that this is not just a political hero who is coming up to bring freedom from the Romans. He's showing them a biblical Christology, not just a political Christology. So where, if, if Peter or um, let's say some of the contemporary thought of the day would assume that the Christ is going to be political, well, where's Jesus getting his information from? Yes, from his identity as the son of God, but also from scripture, even as we read from Psalm 118 this morning. Jesus says that the son of man must be rejected. Psalm 118 says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Isaiah 53 says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, that he must suffer. Isaiah 50 prophesied saying, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And as we read the full gospel and see the crucifixion and suffering and death of Jesus, these things take place, even though they were prophesied hundreds of years before about who the Messiah would be, what he would do, what he would look like. Isaiah 52 says he was, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of man. And you just look at Isaiah 53 and it is a total description about who that suffering servant would be as a divine Messiah and Savior for us, for sinners, humans like you and me. Isaiah 53 says that he was despised and rejected. It says that he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was smitten by God. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes we are healed. It says that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He was led like a sheep uh, to the slaughter and was silent. He was stricken for the transgression of God's people. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And yet he did this for us. He did this to make many to be accounted righteous. 
and he shall bear their iniquities. He even poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's the Christ that Jesus knows is God's Messiah. Not a political hero, but a savior from sin who must be rejected and suffer and die and rise again. Not only is Jesus fulfilling prophecy, but he's also prophesying for his disciples the things that will happen. Maybe he could assume that, yes, the, the, the Pharisees have been conspiring to kill me. Maybe you could assume that he will suffer, that he will be rejected, that he will die. Some of these things will have already happened in his rejection from the Pharisees. But to say, in, after three days, the Son of Man must rise again, he's even prophesying his own resurrection for his disciples, which no person could ever do. So this is an amazing point that Jesus uh, was fulfilling prophecy and prophesying for his disciples what was soon going to happen. And he said it so plainly. Mark chapter 8 says that uh, he said these things plainly. Meaning he was confident. He was unwavering. He was even bold or confident in the things he was saying. He was confident because he, he had his confidence in who he was because of his p- perfect understanding of God's identity and God's character and God's sovereignty in this plan. So Jesus could trust perfectly. He could trust God even in the face of his most dire circumstances, even though he knew that his suffering death was going to come. He could say these things plainly confidently, matter-of-factly. Why? Isaiah 26 describes it this way. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So Jesus, with perfect trust in God, was kept in perfect peace in the sovereign plan of God, even though it meant his suffering, rejection, and death. He knew this is what must happen. It must happen for my people, for their salvation. For God to accomplish the gospel, everything that Jesus has been declaring and demonstrating, he must send an intermediary who is God and man, the son of God, to pay a debt that only God could pay. No human can pay the debt of sin that we owe to God. Only God can pay that debt. But to pay the requirement for sin that only you and I deserve to pay and are required to pay. That's who Christ is. The intermediary sent from God for humans and sinners like you and me. This is the good news. And Christ said, it must happen this way. It must happen. His mind was set on the things of God with perfect confidence and peace because he knew the joy that was ahead. He had a long-term plan for God's glory and our good, and this must happen. But this is where Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. We don't know what Peter said, but we can assume, based on the things that Jesus just described and is about to explain that Peter had some other way of thinking that must be different, that 
rather than suffering, you must preserve your life. We can find a way to to preserve your life and ministry here with us, go for earthly success in some other way than being rejected by all the important people. How are you going to accomplish anything if you're rejected by all the chief priests, scribes, and elders? There must be another way to save your life and not die, Jesus. We can assume that these might have been some of his thoughts because of what Jesus just described. Get behind me, Satan is what Jesus replies to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Such strong words. Is he he addressing Peter in this moment? Or is he addressing Satan? To what level is Satan at work in Peter? We don't know, but we'll look at an answer that we'll come to at the end. But for Peter's case, maybe out of a misinformed view of Christ's mission, we could assume Peter was thinking just in earthly and temporal um, terms of Jesus' reign, that it was going to be something here, a big political movement right now. Maybe out of an affectionate view of Jesus Christ, we could assume that Peter um, was really thinking in terms of protection and love for Jesus. I don't want you to die, Jesus. I don't want you to suffer, Jesus, out of a genuine good intentions of his heart. But neither of these, if Peter was misinformed and just naive, or if he was really just loving, protecting Jesus, neither of those deserves the rebuke, get behind me, Satan. Right? If Jesus was really kind and and considerate of Peter, he wouldn't say these words. But this gives us a picture of what Jesus is targeting behind Peter's words. That there is this seductive lie at work um, behind the either misinformed or affectionate thinking. In other words, God gave you a correct view of Christ. I gave you a complete view of Christ. But Satan is giving you a competing version of Christ. And that's what Jesus is going to unpack next. There is a competing version of the gospel at work. And Satan's imitation gospel is a good news of self-preservation. It's, it's nothing new. It's the, it is the pill that Adam swallowed which led to death. This fake news, this good news of self-preservation. It continues to affect almost everything we do in our daily lives today. And Jesus says this. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The things of God and the things of man. This is what it comes down to. How we set our mind on, how we prioritize, how we esteem in our hearts and minds. The things of God versus the things of man says everything about whether or not you and I are following the true gospel of God or some other preconceived notion that we derive from our own finite worldview, what would work best for us or even the deceitful schemes of the enemy. So from here, Jesus calls together a crowd because he sees their need for the call of Christ as he unpacks for us um, how, what is the antidote to the poisonous lies of the enemy in the identity, mission, and call of Christ? So here he calls the crowd together. Let's pick this back up in 
which verse is this? Uh, verse 34. He says, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So Jesus is going off on Satan's lie by totally unpacking the truth of the gospel. It's like he's prescribing the antidote to the poison that he sees has so insidiously infected Peter's heart and mind and the the disciples too as he turns and sees the disciples and as he sees the crowd he realizes I need to give these people the call of Christ as the antidote to the poison of Satan's lies so he says first of all whoever would come after me must deny himself take up his cross follow me and then he reiterates things with these three statements that begin with the word for For whoever would save his life will lose it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words. So Jesus is obliterating the lie by laying on the truth in all these ways on how to combat the the lies of Satan with the truth of the gospel. Satan tries to poison our identity, our mission, and our call as followers of Jesus, just like he was trying to deceive uh, and tempt Jesus, Satan comes after us as well. So what is the, the healing truth that Peter, the disciples, and you and I need to hear? If the poison from the enemy is to embrace yourself, then the antidote must be to deny yourself, as Jesus' words tell us. If the poison is to preserve your life, then the antidote is to take up your cross as Jesus prescribes. If the poison is to follow in Satan's version of success and heed his call for your best life now, the antidote must be to follow Christ, to follow God in his call, which is not just for your temporal, earthly benefit right here and now, but for your long-term, eternal good and glory. Together, these things, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, they do not give us a list of things to do or a religious to-do list. Um, They show us how to live out the gospel, what it looks like to take that gospel that Jesus gave us that the Son of Man must be rejected, suffer, die, and rise again, and how we now live that out in his footsteps. First of all, these things are not just a matter of our mind. He's not just teaching us um, intellectually about the Christ, but he's also drawing out our heart. We, um, are we setting our mind on the things of God or the things of man? Or are we going to be ashamed of Jesus or affectionate for Jesus. So he's, he's calling to us to come to him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength in 
every area of life, our identity, our mission um, to, in obedience to God, and our call to follow Christ in his kingdom. So um, let me just unpack these a little bit more. Jesus is making it apparent now that there is a call to follow him. Again, in this crowd, when he says, whoever would come after me must pick up their cross, this is going to present a stumbling block for people. This is going to draw a line in the sand where some people will continue to follow Jesus and other people will not. This is a, a time where he makes real to us all the words and the works that he's declared and demonstrated about his gospel. This is where... Um, you know, we're not just following him anymore to benefit from the works that he does for the kingdom of God or to be interested in the words of salvation that we hear in his teaching, but to actually come alongside in following him and carrying the cross that he will carry. So first thing is our identity. The, the, the poison that the enemy sows into our hearts and minds is to embrace yourself. And the antidote, antidote must be to deny yourself. What does it mean to deny yourself? What does this mean for us today? Uh, more often, we put ourselves first. This is just what we happen to do. This is part of who we are, is we put ourselves first and think of ourselves first, if not only about ourselves. You cannot come after the kingdom of God by embracing yourself and also coming after Jesus. These are di two divergent tracks. We abandon ourselves to come after Christ. The call to come after me is part of our identity. It requires to deny ourselves, to deny where we would rather put ourselves on the throne of our life. But it is God alone who can redeem us for his kingdom. And so it is Christ alone that who must have the throne in our heart. God is the only one capable. You are not capable of salvation on our own. That throne belongs to Jesus. So we must deny ourselves in submission to Christ, even as Christ in his life, death, and resurrection humbled himself, submit himself to the will of the Father for his glory. A.W. Tozer says this, um, paraphrasing here, but that when Christ is put in his rightful place, a thousand problems are fixed at once. We must deny ourselves and all the problems we've carried ourselves into by sin and put Christ in his rightful place and a thousand things are made right. Because you and I have been made in the image and likeness of God, this is part of our identity. And that is part of what Satan tries to sway us from. Your identity is not most full when you are most full of yourself. Your identity is most fulfilled when you are filled in God and dependent on him. How will we deny ourselves this week? What does this actually look like? It's to put Christ first in every decision of our life. Um, it's to think first and foremost of Christ. A lot of times, you know, this has been a year of Zoom and video conferences and all these things because of COVID. And one thing that we kind of develop, I think, maybe I'm just talking about myself here, 
But when you're on Zoom in a room full of people and you have the self-view corner where you see what you look like, a lot of times you just can't help but glance like, okay, am I looking okay? Am I making a funny face right now? Are people, what, do, what do people think about me? Is there something in my teeth? We need to, did you know on Zoom, you can hide the self-view. You can just remove your picture completely. Who cares what people see about me, right? That's what we need to do in life. We need to turn off the self-view in every day of our life. Put Christ at the forefront of our heart and our mind. So then there's our mission, our identity and our mission. Um, Satan's mission is to preserve your life. Do everything you can to avoid suffering. God's mission is to take up your cross. God's mission is obedience. That's our mission. One of Satan's strategies for poisoning our mission is to get us to think of our best interests only in the short term and never in the long term. He tempts us to focus on the earthly temporal realities here and now. What's going to work best for you today? Oh, not what's down the line, not what's in eternity. What about your wants? What about your needs? This is what Satan gets us to set our mind on the things of man. And he did it with Adam and he did it with Peter and he does it with you and me. Saying something like uh, suffering and rejection and death does not sound like God loves you. Wouldn't it be in your best interest not to suffer? Not to be rejected? Not to die? Keeping you away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That does not sound like God loves you. Did he really say that? Wouldn't it be in your best interest to eat this fruit and be like God? Satan always presents some appealing nature um, in his appeal and his temptations, but never in light of the long-term perspective, only in a finite short-term perspective, setting our mind on the things of man. But while he does this, he also gets us, tempts us to second-guess God's nature, his own character and his love for us. Um, he, he gets us to um, question God's even, in his own glory, his own goodness, and his plan for our life. Jesus was not tempted in any way by this. Jesus was so certain of God's character, God's goodness, that he was confident in his identity and thus obedient in his mission. He trusted God. Satan will do what he can to skew the whole order. And if he can malign God's, the, our picture of who God is, his character, then our identity will be totally in question and we will not obey his mission. Saying, maybe God isn't who you thought. Maybe you are not his beloved. Maybe there's another way you don't have to carry this cross. That's where Peter rebuked the idea of suffering because in his mind, set on the things of man, not on the things of God, he didn't have a category for how God could be good and also be sovereign over our suffering. This doesn't sound right, Jesus, that you're going to go suffer and die? Well, what that reveals in the reluctance for his obedience is actually a whole question on who God is and who we are in light of God. So this is some of the work that Satan will try to do. How could God have a plan for my life that involves suffering? We could often ask these questions ourselves if we 
set our mind on the things of man and not on the things of God, but on the things of God, God is an everlasting rock worthy of our eternal trust and he sets him in perfect peace whose mind is set on him. So we combat the enemy with our trust in God, a scripturally based confidence in his goodness and his glory. Third thing is to take up our cross. God's wisdom, which is foolishness to the world and to you and I, is to take up the cross. How do we take up the cross this week? And if Jesus would die on the cross as the sacrifice for our sins, one sacrifice for all sins, why would we even need to go to the cross? Isn't that just redundant? How can we add anything to the work that Jesus has already done? Um, Jesus is not saying to take up a cross so that we can continue to pay for our sins. He's prescribing the antidote that we can apply daily to the work, uh, to our sins in life. Um, to say with Paul that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul wasn't literally saying I have been crucified, but his mindset and the affections of his heart were set on Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul was never more alive than when he was alive in Christ and dead to himself, taking up his cross. Our suffering in this world, our suffering in this life, the foolishness that we face, the chastisement we receive, our disjointedness from the world we live in is the cross that we bear by following Jesus in his footsteps. We don't add any atonement for any of our sins, but to carry our cross each day and follow Jesus is the application of the gospel for our sins. The gospel has been accomplished, but we continue to apply it. And that is when we take up the cross as the antidote to the poison of self-preservation. We face this poison of self-preservation in every area of life, whether it's in our workplace, our school, um, our family, wherever we're getting through traffic to get where we need to be. Self-preservation is the mode that we live in. So we deny ourselves, we take up the cross, we follow him. But this doesn't just lead to our annihilation. Like I said with Paul, that even as, Christ, as Paul considered him crucified, that he no longer lives, but Christ lives in him, the picture here is not annihilation. The picture here is redemption and restoration and resurrection, glorification. Our fallen self... Okay, us in our finite view, we assume that God's supremacy must entail the complete annihilation of ourself. Like that's the best picture is that I exist no longer and it's only God. But God's actual plan is not for your annihilation, it's for your redemption. Not that you would no longer exist, but that you would exist fully in him and in, with Christ alive in you and I as we go out in this world and as we are joined up in him raised to new life in him. That's the picture of a resurrected self, that we become a child of God and a sibling of Christ. And so finally, I'll just wrap up with this in our call, our call to follow Christ. We are called to follow Jesus. Um, 
not just to be a religious person, not just to go to church. That is not what a Christian is. A Christian is not just someone who goes to church. A Christian is one who follows Christ. Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. So a Christian is anyone in any generation from any nation who follows Christ. That's who we are today as his ambassadors. But following Christ every day requires nothing short of spiritual warfare because of the work of our enemy. We need to apply spiritual warfare. This is how we follow Jesus. Peter, look at Peter for example. He just had um, believed in Jesus professing him as the Christ and then moments later denied him uh, essentially through his misconceptions on the gospel because it cost too much. He had a head and a heart so hopelessly set on the things of man and clueless to the things of God. And so we too, we need an antidote to this poison. The battleground is not just out there. The demons that come to your door and the temptations outside of us, the battleground is our heart and our mind, our, our head and our affections. You and I, just like Peter, do the same thing. We praise God in one moment, we deny him in the next. Not just with our words, but with our intentions, even our misguided intentions. We end up functionally rejecting the gospel by appealing to a different kind of gospel, a different apparent good news that presents itself with a lesser more a lesser cost, a more convenient way. But the apparent cost of the gospel is death. But the eternal um, benefit of the gospel is the gift of life. Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. He also says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sin sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. So the apparent cost of the gospel is self-denial, but the eternal benefit of the gospel is the love of God, that we would not be ashamed of God, that he would not be ashamed of us. Any competing version of the gospel is an adultery to the patient love of God, his outstretched arm and the work of the gospel that he's done on your behalf. Any other imitation of, gospel, of the gospel is not just a matter of your head, it's a matter of your heart. It's a matter of the affections because it's an adultery against the affections of God. So let me just conclude. Adam was the first one who swallowed that pill that Satan came and presented this false gospel. Take this, this will be good for you. It's the same thing that he presented Peter. This is a better idea. And it's the same thing we face today. That's the pill that's, that Adam swallowed and yet suffering is the drink that Christ drank. It's the cup that he drank for us. Now we can come after Christ in his likeness. We turn our trust and our worship to God. That's how the kingdom is made real for humans like us. That's how salvation is accomplished for sinners like us. That Christ drank the cup of God's wrath that we deserved to drink. He took up the cross and now we follow him in response to his love. We love him because he first loved us.
So taking up our cross is our response to his love. We must deny the pill that has the appearance of good news but contains the cost of death and embrace the cup that appears to be the denial and and suffering and death but contains the gift of eternal life. That is our work to do, but we cannot do it with the hearts that we have that are set in sin. We need a new heart. If anything, if there's one thing for us to come away with today, it's the call to be Christ-like. It's only possible through a new heart. It's not a religious to-do list. It's a way of following Christ with a renewed heart, with our heart and our mind set not on the things of man, but on the things of God. Finally, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the kingdom of God being real for those of us standing here today as we follow Christ, that we gain eternal life not just after our death, but starting today. So let's go in the reality of the kingdom made real, salvation accomplished for us because of the Christ and his identity, call, and mission for our life. Jesus, thank you for your patience towards us. Thank you for your love for us um, that we see behind the, the words, get behind me, Satan. We see this call to get beside me, Peter. You were reaching out for Peter's love while rebuking the enemy who so often tries to deceive us, God. Lord, would you work in our hearts today um, as we go from here and as we turn, uh, continue to worship you, fill our hearts and our minds with you that we would not set our, our minds on the things of man but on the things of God. We need your help to do this. We need a new heart from you, Jesus. Amen.